Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is the Asian Madness Podcast. A podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Afghanistan, officially and currently known as the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, is a country that's smack right in the center between Central and South Asia. It is completely surrounded by other countries, including Pakistan to the east, Iran to the west, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan to the north, and Tajikistan and China to the northeast. Size-wise, Afghanistan is about 252,000 square miles about one-fifteenth the size of the United States, and population as of recent is a little over 40 million. The capital and largest city is Kabul, located on the eastern side of the country. While Afghanistan has a whole range of different landscapes, it is mostly covered with mountainous regions, especially to the north. These mountains tend to get very snowy, and it is actually the backbone of all the river systems in the country which results in very fertile land in the valley. The more south you go, the drier it gets, so you'll end up in the desert. Afghanistan is home to many different ethnicities, mainly being the Pashtuns and the Tajiks, which combined makes up about 70% of the population. The remaining ethnic groups include the Hazara, Uzbeks, Turkmen, Balak, etc. The official languages used in Afghanistan are Dari, also known as Afghan Persian, a form of Farsi, and Pashto, the native language of the Pashtuns. The word Afghan technically refers to a group of ancient inhabitants in the Hindu Kush region, and the word Stan is a common country suffix, as it means place of or land of. Afghan is also the word people use for ethnic Pashtuns, so Afghanistan would then mean land of the Afghans or land of the Pashtuns. Religion-wise, I'm sure you all probably know, but still, it has to be said. Almost 100% of the population follow the teachings of Islam. Bet you didn't know that. Human presence in what we know of as Afghanistan can be traced back to the Middle Paleolithic Age, so at least 50,000 years ago. The assumption is backed by the type of artifacts found in the region. Early civilization is believed to have started around 3000 BCE, or maybe even earlier. So something to note, this area is very close to Pakistan, India, and Iran, so a lot of its history and geography kind of lumps these places together. 
The Indus Valley is believed to have stretched over 900 miles starting from the Indus River and outward, so it's quite normal to see many other countries share a common history. In this case, Afghanistan and Iran share quite a few similarities, ranging from similarity in language and culture. It was basically the same situation back when we discussed Pakistan, Bangladesh, and India. During the age of Alexander the Great, the land known as Afghanistan was conquered by the empire and was heavily influenced with Greek culture. Then the Indian Empire rose up, began to take over Afghanistan from the south, bringing their own culture and Buddhism into the region. That ended when the Greco-Bactrians, a Hellenistic Greek state, took over, which was then taken over again by the Indo-Greek kingdom. Yeah, it's a little confusing, but it's basically a bunch of kingdoms fighting and taking over land over and over. It's a common theme in history, and we will see more of this in the next few minutes. Moving on to the 1st century BCE, the whole Silk Road network begins. Afghanistan being smack in the middle of the whole network was able to not just interact with various cultures and countries, they were able to trade and do extremely well on their own. The Kushan Empire, who had the most control over Afghanistan back then, filled the country with Buddhist culture and, of course, the religion. Again, many empires and kingdoms came and went, taking the country and losing it a bit later to another empire. Despite all this change in ownership, Afghanistan remained quite Buddhist, that is, until the Arab Muslims showed up sometime around 642 CE. Some people accepted the new religion, while many others fought back. Despite the country being flooded by Buddhism years ago, it was also quite diverse in other religions due to its many encounters with other cultures. Religions included Zoroastrianism, Iranian religions, Hinduism, Christianity, and Judaism. Seeing how so many religions were coexisting in peace, adding Islam to the mix wasn't really an issue. If you wanted that, go for it. It was all working for the people till the 10th century, where the Ghaznavids dynasty rose up. They managed to spread Islam quite successfully, and again, like many of their peers, they were eventually overthrown as well. The Mongols took over pretty much all of Central Asia around 1210, until the 1380s when the Timurid Empire won and ruled Afghanistan till the 16th century. For about two centuries, the Indian Mughals and the Iranian Savavi dynasty fought hard against each other over Afghanistan. Once the Safavi leader, Nadir Shah, died though, native Pashtuns, or the Durrani, took over ruling Afghanistan, their first ruler being Ahmad Shah in 1747, who supposedly was the one who united all the Pashtun tribes and kept everything in order. His empire also invaded India multiple times during his reign, some successful, others not so much. His main reasoning for invading India was because the state of Afghanistan was shaky, and their best bet was to take over richer places around them and grow their empire. A lot more fighting took place after Ahmad Shah passed away, and it wasn't until 1823 when Dost Muhammad Khan stepped in and finally restored order. Moving on to more modern times, Afghanistan ends up losing a lot of places they had previously conquered, and not only are they fighting against the Sikh Empire and the Persians, let's throw the British and Russians into the mix. You know how it goes, Asian history will always have its fair share of European colonizers. 
So this is the beginning of a time known as the Great Game, where the Russians and the British are trying to get as much control of the whole Asian region. Russia was moving down south, taking over all the Central Asian countries, while the British were moving north from India, at the same time trying to protect the reign in India and Pakistan, aka the East India Company. There was the Anglo-Afghan War in 1839 and the Second War in 1878, where the British pretty much took over most of Afghanistan in order to keep the Russians away. Afghanistan officially became a British protected state in 1879. Fast forward again to World War I, Afghanistan tried to use this time as an opportunity to not only ally itself with anyone, but to rebel against the British. This eventually triggered the Third Anglo-Afghan War, which resulted in the 1919 Treaty of Rawalpindi, declaring the Emirate of Afghanistan sovereign and independent. The leader of Afghanistan at the time, Amanullah Khan, changed the nation's name to the Kingdom of Afghanistan in 1926, mostly because he declared himself king, and what is a king without a kingdom? A lot of reform worked its way into the country, such as education for women, compulsory education, and abolishing slavery. Although we see this as good reform and good progress, many religious leaders in Afghanistan did not approve. The Afghan war took place in 1928, Amanullah was thrown out, and the new king decided to take a step back with all the reforms. Maybe he felt that all these changes were too sudden for the people, and sometimes change in the right direction takes time. The new king, King Nadir Shah, was unsurprisingly assassinated in 1933 by an Amanullah loyalist, and his 19-year-old son, Zahir Shah, took over the position as new king of Afghanistan. His reign, of course, was challenged by many opposers, but he managed to remain king and befriended several Muslim states, including Turkey, and the Hashemite Kingdom of Iraq. They also became buddies with Nazi Germany, the Kingdom of Italy, and the Empire of Japan. King Zahir Shah ended up ruling Afghanistan for about 40 years, and he pretty much continued his father's ways. He wanted to make changes, wanted to modernize the country, have national independence, and create a nationalistic feeling amongst the people. During the time Afghanistan was building and modernizing, both the U.S. and Soviet Russia wanted to get Afghanistan's attention, and both countries ended up helping and donating a ton to Afghanistan. It was also during the Cold War, and you could say Afghanistan got the best of both worlds at that time. The monarchy system in Afghanistan was officially abolished in 1973, when Daoud Khan launched a coup while the king was away declaring himself the first president of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. This republic, though, was short-lived and the Communist Party, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, seized power in 1978. It's important to note that from this point on, a once peaceful Afghanistan turned into a raging terrorism-filled nation overnight. Not everyone wanted this Communist Party to take over, so understandably, other groups were formed hoping to stop this. You then get the Communist Party fighting against the guerrilla, Mujahideen, or what one might call terrorists, or simply someone who fights with the intention of serving their god. On one hand, the US and the Pakistani government are helping these Mujahideen with training and weapons, and on the other hand, you have the Soviet Union assisting 
the Communist Party in all ways possible. The Communist Party eventually got out of control when an internal coup took place and Hafizullah Amin took over as the new general secretary. He was not very capable. Things went to shit, and tons of people who opposed him suddenly disappeared. Soviet Russia was unhappy with this coup and how things were going, so they went to Afghanistan, tracked the guy down, and murdered him. This was pretty much the start of the Soviet-Afghan war, where Soviet Russia basically barged into Afghanistan, trying to tone them down or something like that. The U.S. and Pakistan continued to fund the rebelling team, not just in money, but also in tactical training, weapons, and missiles. At least half a million people were dead, and around six million were displaced when the war ended. It was basically a bunch of other countries overstepping boundaries and trying to control a country for their own gain, which resulted in the militarization of Afghanistan. Unfortunately, I see this as a lose-lose situation for everyone involved. Another civil war erupted in 1992, and finally in 1996, the Taliban, one of the Islamic fundamentalist group, took over control of most of Afghanistan, naming it the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. The Taliban were not really kind people. They interpreted Islam in the most extreme ways possible and used it to control everyone. The Taliban also offered Al-Qaeda, an Arab terrorist group, their country to use as a base, and this group is responsible for one of the most infamous terrorist attacks known to us, the 9-11 attack. Since the Taliban refused to hand over the Al-Qaeda leader to the U.S., or rather, Osama bin Laden, the U.S. began a series of attacks in Afghanistan. In December of 2001, the last Taliban fighters pretty much got bombed out of Afghanistan and the country was then declared free from the Taliban. They were out of Afghanistan, yes, but they were still secretly regrouping in Pakistan. They couldn't win this time, but they weren't going to give up just yet. In the meantime, the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan was established in 2004, and the country began to focus on rebuilding, restructuring, and educating. This included healthcare, education, infrastructure, and of course, the economy. At this point, Afghanistan was probably years behind many of their neighboring countries, but they did whatever they could to catch up. Now recently, something big happened. Military troops from the U.S. were set to begin leaving Afghanistan on May 1st, 2021, but as soon as that started, the Taliban rushed in and seized control once again, officially taking over Afghanistan on August 15th, 2021. Like I said, they had spent a good chunk of time, like two decades, regrouping and strategizing. People in Afghanistan were being evacuated as quickly as possible, but many of them were not fortunate enough to escape. The country was no longer known as the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. It was restored to the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, its leader being Hibatullah Akunzada and its acting prime minister being Hassan Akund. All government officials have been replaced, and of course, all of them are men. People began to suffer from food and resource shortages soon after the Taliban took over, and humanitarian groups were also no longer able to provide Afghanistan with help. It's obviously an ongoing situation, so depending on when you're listening to this, things could be very different later on. Sorry if that went on for too long. 
I just think that what's going on in Afghanistan is a current issue, and we should probably get a sense of what's happening and also understand how things came about. I honestly did not know too much about the Taliban or their history with Afghanistan, so hopefully some of you were able to find this slightly interesting. But enough history and politics. Did you know that Afghanistan is extremely well known for their fruits such as pomegranates, grapes, and melons? But if you're like me and you're not into fruits, well, Afghanistan is extremely rich in culture and art, and one of the world's oldest oil paintings was found in Afghanistan. Unfortunately though, this cave and its Buddhist statues no longer exist because the Taliban government blew them up in 2001, saying that this isn't very Islamic of them. One more interesting fact is that Afghanistan produces the most poppies in the world, which can be then used for heroin and opium. Yes, it's interesting, but probably not tourism-worthy. I've seen all these old-school photos of Afghanistan back in the olden days, where the women dressed as they pleased and were generally able to do pretty much anything. It's pretty upsetting to see Afghanistan's current state and read about how people are suffering under the Taliban, especially women. Every day we see some weird new rule being enacted by the Taliban. I do believe Afghanistan is a beautiful place, but sorry to say, it's definitely not the best place to visit at the moment. Maybe one day, though, peace will be restored and the Taliban will be gone for good. So for today's case, obviously it's a case that took place in Afghanistan. I rarely hear about crimes in Afghanistan, maybe because any time you try to hear about what's going on there, it's usually about terrorism and the Taliban. Also, popular news media sources rarely go outside the West when it comes to crime stories, so people in the West are less likely to hear about it. So I dug around a bit and came across a rather interesting case, and if this had taken place anywhere else, it would have definitely made major headlines and we would have heard about it. So tell me, how many women serial killers have you heard of? You've probably heard of Eileen Warnos, or perhaps Dorothea Puente, who killed for money, or maybe Nanny Doss, who was labeled a black widow. Women, of course, can be serial killers, but statistics show us that most serial killers are likely to be men. Also, women tend to have complete different motives and methods when it comes to killing. In an article in discovermagazine.com, it is stated that men tend to kill for sexual pleasure and control, while women are usually driven by money. While men tend to choose more violent ways to end someone's life, women are more likely to use subtle ways, such as poison. Today we will be discussing a woman who killed many men for financial gain, but with the help of other men. It's not as straightforward as it sounds, and there is much more to discuss than murder itself. So prepare yourselves. Let's begin. I have to admit, there really isn't as much information as I hoped there'd be. Definitely no biography of the killer or the victims. Not much background information in general. And most of the information regarding her killings have since vanished from official archives. Why? I really don't know. Maybe they weren't keen on sharing information. Or maybe they figured, we found the killer, why keep all of this? So, on to the case. As we know, child brides are a thing in many parts of the world. Not a good thing but unfortunately, still a thing. This was the life that Shireen Ghul had to endure, 
or at least that's what she stated. Shiringuo was said to have been orphaned at a very young age, but was taken in by her relatives. Her exact background and even her date of birth is unknown, which isn't really surprising under her circumstances. Some cultures don't tend to view women as individuals, and their ultimate purpose in life was to get married and serve their future husband. While it was nice of her relatives to take her in, they also probably had problems when it came to raising her, whether it was financial or something else. Once Shirin Ghoul was about 11 years old, or maybe around the time she began menstruating, her relatives married her off to a man named Azam, and of course, he was an adult. So who was this guy? Some sources say he was involved in a communist party, some say he was a police officer, and some others say he was someone involved in organized crime. Whichever it was, he was not someone you would consider a good guy. I also can't imagine how he treated his wife, Shirin Ghul, who was basically a child. While I believe most of us view this as disgusting and predatory behavior, I honestly wonder what it's like to be born and brought up in a society where this is acceptable and encouraged. Are these men just conditioned to want kids as brides? As for the girls, are they born and raised with the mentality and purpose of being married off at a young age, not fully understanding what it means? Please note, I do not have any specific timelines to this case, but it can be roughly estimated to have taken place in the 90s. Shireen Gould's date of birth is, like I said, unknown, but it is believed that she was born sometime in the mid to late 70s. So, she was sent off to marry a grown-ass man, Azam, in the city of Jalalabad, and as expected, she performed wifely duties to him, and by the time she was in her late teens, she gave birth to her son, Samula. It's never stated whether she felt love or loyalty to her husband, but knowing that he was physically abusive to her probably did not help with her feeling love towards him. In another sense, though, I do believe that living together for years must have at least forced them to share a bond with each other, especially after having a child together. Things began to take a turn, though, after Shiringul got to know one of her husband's relatives, a man by the name of Ramatula. It didn't take very long for an attraction to form between the two, and before long, both were said to have been in love with each other. Shiringul even considered this man the most attractive man she's ever met. Ramatula was also said to have been well acquainted in the business of shady things. He was said to have been the driver for a Taliban strongman. So, close ties with terrorists. Either way, he was a sketchy character, but what can you do? Love is love. It wasn't until later when Sharingul found out just how involved Ramatula was with the world of crime. He visited Azam and Sharingul quite often, bringing them various gifts and food, sometimes bringing gifts only for her. Divorce was obviously out of the question, so what would you do if you fell for someone else while married? Do you ignore your urges and continue being loyal, regardless of your marriage circumstances, as in being a child bride? Or do you cheat and secretly see them behind your spouse's back? Or, perhaps, you find a way to get rid of your spouse? Obviously, the two decided to do that. Shireen Gul's husband, Azam, was already known to be a shady man and was possibly responsible for up to 18 deaths. 
That fact alone made it easier for Shireen and her lover to kill him, since he wasn't exactly an upstanding man to begin with. The lover, Ramatula, supposedly did end up confessing to Azam about his affair with the wife, and knowing Ramatula was quite high-ranking and had backing in the Taliban world, Azam was hesitant to say or do anything. At this point, you might be thinking, interesting development. If the husband is willing to let it go, then no need to kill, right? Wrong. Shireen Gul was not really happy with her husband's response. I don't know if it's her desire to be desired, or if it's the whole a man should be masculine and aggressive was drilled into her mind, but her husband's response only made her want to kill him even more. Quote, when someone becomes a coward, he deserves death. Unquote. Quite extreme. The two ended up planning out the murder, killed him, and buried him under the floorboards of their home in Jalalabad. What next? There are two versions of the following events, and these two versions make a huge difference when it comes to what kind of sentence Shiringul would and should receive. Let me give you the first version, the one that officials believe happened. During the time Shiringul began her affair with Ramatula, she found out that he also took part in various crime rings, mostly involving killing people, taking their vehicles and selling it for profit. She was now free of her real husband, had a lover, and decided to join this crime ring. The pair didn't work alone, though. They had help from some of Ramatula's friends, and even Shireen Gul's own son took part in the operations. What they would do was have some of their men take cabs or rides from around town, and once arriving at their destination, most likely Shireen Gul's home, they would invite the driver into the house for some kebab and tea. In many societies, this is probably weird and not something we'd do because why would you invite a random stranger to your home? But this wasn't weird or dangerous in Afghanistan, and it was mostly a sign of friendliness and hospitality. Most of these drivers were unsuspecting, even happy to be invited for some afternoon tea. But once they took a bite or a sip of the sedative-laced tea and food, they fell unconscious. The criminals would then strip them of all their belongings, kill them, take their car, and sell it to buyers, mostly in Taliban-controlled areas near the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. In another version, Shireen Gul was also said to have been soliciting men for sex, inviting them to her home, but instead of a happy ending, they end up dead. They were making good money, and they clearly had no guilt or conscience, so they ended up killing more than 20 people. So for the other version, the one that Shireen Gul told the authorities but seemed less believable, was that she was an unwilling participant. She knew about the murders and the thefts, but she couldn't do anything to change things. She stated that she had asked him to stop, but as time went on, she began to fear him and his friends. She was worried that if she stopped helping or if she tried to remove herself from the situation, she would end up in the floorboards as well. In other minor variations of her version, she claimed to not know about his criminal activities at all. Which version do you believe? Business was booming for this criminal group. But like many criminals out there, they would eventually arouse suspicion and get caught. After killing about almost 20 people in Jalalabad, the group would then up and move to Kabul, the capital city of Afghanistan. A wealthy businessman by the name of Muhammad Anwar had been invited to visit Shiringul in order to discuss some sort of property deal. 
What the criminals didn't know was that while he was on his way to her home, he had received a call from his uncle. During that conversation, he told his uncle about his trip, the meeting, and his final destination. Once he was found dead and naked a couple days later, police knew exactly where to go and search for clues. What a great way to find and trace the criminals. Everyone thinks they're so smart and sneaky, but the truth is, they're usually not. The police arrived at the property Shireen Ghul and her lover were staying at, and boom, immediately, things were fishy. After an extensive search, they ended up finding approximately 26 bodies total from both their home in Jalalabad and in Kabul, including the body of Shireen Ghul's husband. Aside from the huge amounts of sedatives, guns, documents that belonged to other people, multiple license plates, personal belongings found, something else that stood out to them was the amount of shoes they had in the house. It was not common for them to own multiple pairs of shoes, and in this household alone, they found over 22 pairs of shoes. And of course, in various sizes. How do you explain away any of that? Their crime organization lasted for about four years in total, resulting in at least 26 victims, possibly a lot more. It all finally came to an end around the year 2004. Ramatula, Sheringul, and many of their accomplices, including Sheringul's own son, were arrested and ended up confessing to their crimes. Everyone involved received the death sentence, but Sheringul's sentence was swiftly changed to 20 years in prison which is pretty much the equivalent of life imprisonment. While she was in prison, though, she tried to take back her previous confession, saying that she had no part in any of the killings and thefts, and that she only confessed because she was forced to. While that could be possible, fact is, her behavior while she was in prison was extremely questionable, and did not really support her innocence. She allegedly told various inmates, visitors, and prison officers about the crimes, her participation, and the amount of money they made. She was also evaluated by a healthcare worker while she was in prison, and everyone who has ever tried to evaluate her concluded that she did seem to suffer from some sort of mental illness, and Shireen Ghul admitted it herself, though I wonder if it was because it felt more convenient to do so. Her manners weren't exactly subtle either. She was said to have been an extremely charming person in prison, all other prisoners and prison guards liked her, and they even saw her as their sister. She would often have random bouts of emotions, sometimes super cheerful and excited, but the next second really calm and serious, and two seconds later, she would be all teary-eyed. She also stated that due to her mental health state, she sometimes couldn't tell fact from fiction, so it was difficult for her to confirm whether or not she had actively participated in the crimes or not. One day she would praise Ramatula and call him the most beautiful man she had ever known. The next day she would call him a womanizer, a pedophile, and a gambler. Obviously, these are not mutually exclusive, but I guess we can tell that there is a strong love-hate relationship going on. She's currently still serving her sentence in prison, but during that time, about two years into her prison sentence, she somehow managed to get pregnant and gave birth to a baby girl in prison. Some believe she may have done this on purpose, hoping that by having a kid, she can incite some sympathy and not have to face a death penalty ever again. The father of her child is unknown, and it was definitely not her lover's child as the timelines do not match up. 
The father was more than likely one of the prison guards, or someone who worked there. One strange thing about having a child in prison in Afghanistan is that after having the child, instead of allowing the baby to leave and go live with other relatives or get adopted, the child ends up staying in prison with their mother. It's not just her either. Plenty of women gave birth in prison. And all these kids would end up living in prison cells with their mothers. Although many cities in Afghanistan have programs where mothers could leave their kids at orphanages, it strictly requires the mother's consent. This, though, was not a program that was available for Shireen Gul. And even if it was available, I don't think she would have been open to it. Shireen Gul's daughter, Mina, is now a teenager. In an article published in 2017 from the New York Times, she has supposedly never been out of prison facilities. She was born there, grew up there, never left to visit family, never experienced anything outside the prison. The prison even has programs for kids of prisoners, meaning schooling. They lump a bunch of similarly aged kids together and teach them. But even though they had this school system, most kids were far behind their actual grades. While there are many other children like Mina, none have to stay in prison for as long as her. Most of the other women in prison are usually found for minor offenses, such as theft, so those sentences were considerably shorter in comparison to, say, murder. Despite spending all her life so far in prison, Mina has never committed any crimes. She's just there because of her mother's crimes. It's probably fair to say that Mina never got to experience a good childhood or any childhood for that matter. She does hope she can leave one day, but she loves her mother and she refuses to leave without her. Not surprising either, since her mother is literally her only relative and the person she's closest to. When asked about her likes and hobbies, Mina talked about her love for dolls, which Shireen despises. Shireen Gul also expressed that she doesn't trust anyone but herself to take care of her daughter. But what kind of care is she providing for her anyway? Shiringo has stated that, quote, It was all Ramatullah's fault. I would not be here if it wasn't for him. They should execute me, then Mina could have cried for one day, and it would be over. Instead, I am crying every day. It's a slow death, dying all the time. Unquote. I personally don't believe that raising a child in prison is a good idea, mainly because kids learn and grow so quickly, and by being in prison, they're denied so much of the outside world. On the other hand, I don't know what kind of life she could have had outside without their mother, assuming she didn't have any other relatives. Would life in an orphanage be better? I really can't say for sure. It's definitely something worth discussing, though. So there you have it. The murder and theft of multiple men, all for some cash. I know, people have been killed for way less. And killing for money to survive and live a good life can actually be considered a method of survival. Not a good method, but there will never be a shortage of people who think that this is the best get-rich-quick scheme. Shireen Gul continues to deny any involvement in the theft and murders. Quote, I didn't commit any crimes. My only fault is that I cooked for my husband who committed a crime. Unquote. I don't know. It seems a bit more than that. She definitely knew about it. She reaped the benefits, and she did admit to her crimes, despite trying to take it back later on. I don't know what will happen to her once her 20 years are up, since it's technically viewed as a life sentence. 
In a way, I hope she gets out because her daughter deserves to be out in the world, living a life. Not sure about now, though, considering Afghanistan's current state. It's just such a complicated situation, both in and out of prison. I can only hope Mina is given lots of love and stability, and once she's out, she can live in a peaceful society and integrate successfully. One can hope, right? Please stay safe. Don't try illegal ways to get rich quick, because if you do, I will turn your story into a podcast episode. Till next time. Before I go, I would like to thank my newest Patreon member, Madison Brooks. Thank you, Madison. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.